In 2022, a crack-riding duo was sent to prison for podcasting crimes that they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security prison to the Austin Underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as Game Masters of Fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find their website, maybe you can hire Retro Arcana. We join our hosts now as they enter the elevator at the Top Secret Podcast Bunker. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bobby. What you reading there? Oh, this? Uh, this is my new copy of Hyperborea by Northwind Adventures. It's a... Uh... D&D derived RPG that focuses on kind of sword and sorcery worlds like Robert E. Howard or Fritz Leiber. Um, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, it uses as a basis the old AD&D system, so you'll have some of those mechanics you're used to, but it cleans it up. It adds some more classes like Cryomancer and Pyromancer and Legerdemainist and uh, let you really get in there and do like Conan the Barbarian or Fofford and the Grey Mouser adventures. It all happens in the land beyond the North Wind, hence the phrase Hyperborea. And uh, all of these various tribes of humans are transported up there. Some of them worship Chthonic deities. And uh, basically you've got these mishmashes of cultures, this, this frozen wasteland with some other biomes in there like an Amazon island. It's some pretty cool stuff. You can run some awesome games with this. That sounds really neat. Uh, I'm enjoying it. Um, if you want a copy, you can pick up the PDF at DriveThruRPG or grab the physical copy like this limited edition leatherette version from Northwind's website. Cool, I may do that. Well, um, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading a game called uh, Deadlands the Weird West. It's a Savage Worlds supplement. Um... Picture it. Old West, 1886. This is kind of an alternate history take. Basically, at the Battle of Gettysburg, something weird happened. And that weird brought back monsters and magic. And so now you've got kind of this weird gestalt of cowboys and zombies going around. Uh, okay, I think you've sold me on this. Yeah. It's a pretty fun take on uh, cowboys, you know, playing play an Old West campaign. You've got such uh, classes as the Blessed, the uh, the Bible-thumping preacher, but this preacher actually has some supernatural powers. Uh, the Huckster, somebody who's dug into uh, Hoyle's Book of Games and found arcane magic. Oh, cool. Um and then, of course, uh, one of the kind of unique uh, classes that you can do there is uh, the Harrowed. It is an undead that has a demon riding inside of it. And while your character still remembers who they were, every rare once in a while, the demon comes out. Very interesting take. There's uh, a couple of different backgrounds that you can take, additional backgrounds that you can take. There's the the chi master, the the martial artist. There's a metal mage, witches, uh, kind of uh, like kind of think of like some H.P. Lovecraft stuff in there too, but all of this thrown into the the old west. Okay, that that sounds pretty awesome. 
And it all runs under Savage Worlds. All runs under Savage Worlds. Now you do need the Savage Worlds book in order to play with the, the, the rules or in the Savage World book, but all of the setting material and new rules are in the Deadlands books. Wicked. Yeah. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, here we are. Let's get started. Now in the secret podcast bunker, our heroes begin the Retro Arcana podcast. Live and direct from a secret podcasting bunker located 300 feet beneath Conan's Pizza. Why? Because pizza and it's really close to a game store and we're hiding from the government right so on with it welcome to the retro arcana podcast i'm jeff i'm bobby and uh we're gonna give this a shot we're we're hiding here in the secret podcasting bunker which i guess isn't so secret anymore yeah considering you just said that we're beneath Conan's Pizza. Right. But you don't know which Conan's Pizza, although you you kind of gave it away with the game store. That's right. Well, I mean, they still don't know that the secret access portal is hidden in the stall of the men's room, right? And that you have to... Never mind. So we're here to talk about games and gaming. That's what Retro Arcana is all about. I, I guess we should explain who Retro Arcana is and why we're about what we're about. So, Bobby, what does Retro Arcana mean to you? Retro Arcana is unicorns and puppies. Now, Retro Arcana is our kind of foray into games and gaming. Uh, we got our start writing for, we, we, we created our own game, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But we love gaming. Primarily tabletop gaming, but, you know, we also like, Card games, board games, computer games. I've been known to LARP from time to time. Yep, he has been known known to LARP. Uh, we're uh, just really kind of wanting to, in addition to our products, we want to get our voices out there. Right. We kind of want to add something to the conversation in the gaming community because we feel like we have some interesting-ish opinions. In Interesting-ish indeed. So what do we bring to the table that might not come from other podcasts? Well, our own unique interpretations. Isn't that what anybody brings to the table? I mean, true. But in addition to that, we're also creative types. Uh, we will bring... We will bring potential products, you know? I mean, I'm a latecomer to the whole gaming hobby. I, I rolled my first D20 in 1986. So that puts me way behind some of the folks that we know from North Texas RPG Con and, and elsewhere. But in those intervening years, I've been pretty busy. I've put together a large collection of books. A massive collection of books. Well, I mean. Uh, and I've... Uh, gotten to the point where I even worked gaming into my master's thesis in military history, which was kind of hilarious getting to reference um, Chainmail and Dungeons and Dragons when talking about uh, classic officer instruction throughout the years. Yeah, that was pretty cool, actually. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I bring a, a sort of analytical view of games and gaming 
and um, you know we add that to the creative side of things and and I think we may come up with things people would like to listen to say every two weeks for 30 minutes to an hour sure that sounds good I ain't got nothing else to do apparently so so what are we going to do differently well we're going to do it our way yes our way (laughs) make all our dreams come true that's right no, I mean, realistically, other people are going to do it their way. We're going to do it our way. It's going to be fun. We've got a unique perspective. Uh, and hopefully we're, you know, hopefully you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, that's that's what we hope is that the the audience likes what we have to say and tunes in on a regular basis. And uh, as we go through, we're, we're going to do some neat things. We're going to attempt to design a game during the content of some of our episodes. I'm actually looking very forward to that. Yes. Um, and uh, I am going to be digging up some dusty old games and telling people why they're still worth playing today. Um, we've also got some other ideas we may flex in the future, like throwing in some side episodes with a little bit of actual play. That could be a lot of fun there. Definitely. And, um, you know, then there's the big project that Bobby and I have been working on with our co-author Ross Watson for more years than we care to admit. Yeah, man, that, that, so this goes into what I was saying earlier. Uh, we, we've written a little game called Dominions of Steel. Jeff, what is Dominions of Steel? Um, a massive project that occupied our brains for ages upon ages. Dominions of Steel is in some ways our love letter to classic battle. Yeah. Well, or Mecha, the, the not necessarily just BattleTech, but you have all of the, you know, there's Mecha anime, there's been other mecha games. Uh, it's just the trope. That's very true. Very true. Uh, so Dominions of Steel is a game that runs on the Savage Worlds game engine. So all of you out there who are Savage fans will be immediately familiar with the underpinnings of yeah. Dominions of Steel. However, you will probably notice some concepts in there that remind you of a few other classic games like Pendragon and the aforementioned Mech Warrior. Yeah. The idea behind Dominions of Steel is it goes back to some of those classic genre tropes that Bobby was referencing um, that makes it sort of like, well, 10 years ago, I would have said Dune with giant robots. But these days, I think it's a little closer to popular culture to say Game of Thrones Thrones with giant robots because you have great and minor houses clashing over resources and using these giant robots to fight their battles you get the experience of running one of these houses and your character is in fact a member of this noble class in most cases and so in dominions of steel you're not just running your character you're also helping chart the course for one of these great and powerful families that was one of the things i really liked about this so to kind of dig into the design a little bit try to think about uh Everything we, we I always called it the three pillars. You have the character, you have the dragoon, which is our mecha, and then you have the noble house. And each one progressively gets bigger as far as the sphere of what it influences. The character, obviously, that's that's character scale, 
And so you're going to interact with and affect other characters. Dragoon, Lords of the Battlefield. These things maneuver around, stomp all over everything, have incredibly powerful weapons, but ultimately, you know, it is like a character, just bigger. And then we have our Noble House, which are built very similarly to characters, but they've got kind of multiple drivers. All of the players at the table have a chance to to influence and direct some aspect of the house using skills or there's even edges for edges and hindrances for the house as well. Um, one of the things that I was kind of uh, happy about and kind of proud when we, we did this, but there's also a whole list of projects that the the noble house and only the noble house can accomplish. And basically this is, you know, everybody literally pushing to to achieve a goal. It's it's what what can happen when you have multiple minds all focused on the same thing. And that's what the the, the project is. And then in the projects, at the end of them you get a reward. And it's something that the player characters can use or the or it could be new dragoons for you to use in dragoon combat or it can be something specific to the noble house and so this is it's got a lot of elements of what uh, what i consider 4x thief management yes um one of my touchstones that was not a tabletop role-playing game when walking in was microprose's master of orion 2 uh, you know, the game is more than two decades old, and yet I still play it. That that 4X feel. And uh, something that I really enjoyed is we took experiences that we had had in previous role-playing games and asked ourselves, wouldn't this be cool, ported into a giant robot setting? For example, you could say that Dominions of Steel has been in playtesting for 15 years. Yeah. Because way back in the single digits of the 2000s, we ran a MechWarrior campaign where we borrowed the entire system for Noble Houses from the Song of Ice and Fire role-playing game to accomplish largely what we're attempting to accomplish with Dominions of Steel. And we noticed a very interesting thing happen to our players. The players, rather than creating a large number of individual households started to band together into groups that created a household as as a community project. And you started getting the sort of shared visions that kind of reminded me a little bit of Vampire Clans. We had the House of Eversoul, which they created their household to be the charismatic, the artsy, the cultured house. And then we had uh, the House of... Din- we had House Dincourt, which were, which were the martial house. The very, very martial house. Uh, a lot of deep martial traditions that they would bring into basically everything. It, you know, constantly wearing their dress uniforms, always on parade kind of thing. Uh, I'm trying to think. We had uh, House, house Buendia, house which Buendia. had an extensive spy network yep, and a vineyard. And, and I believe tobacco plantations as yeah, well. Yeah, tobacco plantations. Because uh, the, the, the owner of that house likes to smoke cigars. 
Right. Um, we also had uh, the House of Dechevelier. Yep. Those bastards. Those bastards. That was that was the house that I created, uh, and we were the the former rulers of the planet, and who were kind of brought low by our own hubris, and were trying to claw our way back up. We were, you know, so so basically where the the idea being, you know, we have kind of a manufacturing house. We have kind of an art house. We have kind of a, a military house. These guys were the ruling house. That's what they focused on was was diplomacy and persuasion. But they uh, they 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 really overextended themselves and fell hard and were trying to come back and. We took these ideas and integrated it into the noble house uh, rules for Dominions of Steel. You can build when you're building your house, in addition to kind of like because uh, I because I said that they were built like characters, in addition to the skills and edges and hindrances, you also have house frameworks. And these frameworks help to further define the kind of things that the house could do. You can have four or five different houses and depending on the framework and the edge build and the hindrances, none of them will be alike. Right. And you can come up with some pretty interesting and unique options. Like we had one of the houses in our old campaign that existed largely underwater. They were, yeah. they were the sub-aquatic house. And uh, you could do that in Dominions of Steel if you so wished. And the neat part is we have something called the Dominion Phase, which is very similar to the Winter Phase in Pendragon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pendragon assuming that because it's Arthurian Europe, you adventure during the summer months and you hunker down in your castle during the winter months. Well, there's no universal winter months in space, yeah. but... There is downtime between adventures. So during that time, you execute the Dominion phase and do the card draws and die rolls for what it is your house is doing. And as Bobby mentioned earlier, you can default to the house's abilities to take care of some of these random events, but it's much more advantageous if you have a player step in. Yeah, absolutely. And so the player can use their unique abilities. For example, if the house is facing infiltration by an enemy house, sure, you could leave it to the house's own security, but why not have the player playing the Intelligencer step in and take personal control? Yeah, the, the, the Intelligencer, a.k.a. the Spy Master. The Spy Master, exactly. And so this draws the players in. It gives the GM wonderful opportunities to drop plot hooks. And you can even pivot those Dominion phase events into a future adventure module. Absolutely. So something else that I want to point out about Dominions of Steel that uh, has to do with the Dragoons, with the combat mecha. Ooh, tell me. Yes. So there's two things I personally love about Dominions of Steel. One is that we have a fairly robust Dragoon construction system because as a Battletech player for many, many years, one of my favorite things is taking mechs apart and rebuilding them, creating new variants, entirely new mechs. I absolutely love tinkering with things. And I really, really hope that other people get as into it as I did. 
Yes, absolutely. One of the most fun things of writing this project was building. Building building out the Dragoons and coming up with backstories for them and fitting them into the overall narrative. Um, so much fun. Like, it, it, it's just, like, I'm, I'm that kind of tinkerer at heart. Yes. And, uh, and you can really tinker, like I said, with the Dragoons. You can, once again, a lot of these are... Because and this will we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more later, but it kind of goes into my design philosophy. You know how a character is built uh, in Savage Worlds. If you're if you're obviously if you're a player of Savage Worlds, you know how to build your character. And so the dragoon is going to be built very similar uh, to that. It's going to have its own attributes and abilities and whatnot. The difference is you're not like you're you're not piloting this thing necessarily like it's got a a a control yoke and buttons and whatnot this isn't a tank you become your brain is the brain of this thing you uh you essentially i i I always described it as you upsize yourself direct Uh, neural interface yeah direct neural interfaces uh what is what the term is but you, you, when you hop into this dragoon, the dragoon becomes your new body, and it has access to all of your skills, all of your, all of your edges. You can uh, really like it, it. You can make it dance around if you wanted to, and it moves just like your body would move if you were, you know, thirty feet tall and weighed two tons. Right. Um, the dragoons, by the way, are a bit smaller than traditional mechs from from some genres. Yeah, I think I think it's anywhere from eighteen to thirty six feet tall. Yeah, eighteen to thirty six, and they're all exclusively bipedal or bipedal. They have two legs, uh, more or less, because when the the paladin, the pilot of the dragoon, puts on the coronet and becomes one with the dragoon. That person has been walking around on two legs for most of their life. They have tried to build dragoons with multiple limbs, like quad quadrupedal ones, but they tend to have an adverse psychological effect on the pilot because suddenly your nervous system thinks you have limbs you never had before. Yeah, It's just not practical and that and a lot of that goes into our lore behind why a lot of this stuff was done uh our our conceit to how all this happened is that it's all kind of an outgrowth of cybernetic technology so whenever you you think about these these futuristic uh these futuristic games where you've got uh maybe a robotic limb the limb moves you know, the, the, the character doesn't have to say limb move and then it moves. They just think it and it does. And we wanted our dragoons to to function the same way. That way they they move more like maybe uh, an anime mecha would move as opposed to a giant kind of plotty uh, like, an like like yeah, like an ad at like a like a tank with legs. Uh, we, we, we wanted there to be like very, very fluid movement. And you get that when you, you, and really it's just, you just have to think of it that way. 
you know, because this is cybernetic technology, um, you get the kind of, uh, motor motor control. Well, kind of motor control. I'm just kind of, I'm just trying to think you get the kind of mental, you know, the mental, uh, conceit that it's just going to function that way. So the second thing that I really love, and this is this is entirely on Bobby. I have to give him full credit for this. Uh-oh, what did I do? One of the things that has always um, bothered me a little bit as a longtime player of that other mecha game is that while the lore says that the giant stompy robots are the lords of the battlefield, if you look closely enough, the economics and the technology base don't bear that out. Units could spend the same amount of currency buying conventional vehicles. And while the vehicles will pop like popcorn, the numbers will eventually win out. Um, now, mobility is a concern. There are lots of places conventional vehicles can't go. But on the average battlefield, you could overrun a group of mechs with a equal or cheaper horde of vehicles. Like... like the the stampede of hetzers um so what we wanted to do in dominions of steel was create a game in which the game mechanics backed up the conceit that the dragoon was the lord of the battlefield and i think bobby did that brilliantly and maybe he can tell us a little bit how well it a lot of it has to do with once again thinking of things in different scales if you think of the character scale and you give them a character scale weapon such as, you know, a rifle. You can shoot at a tank and the bullets are going to bounce off. You need a bigger scale weapon to deal with the tank like a rocket launcher. Well, if we think of vehicles as one scale higher than characters, then we can think of dragoons as one scale higher than vehicles. And so now the dragoon or now the vehicle needs a special type of weapon to even think about hurting the dragoon. And a lot of the mechanics that we've put into place to ensure that dragoons are the lords of the battlefield are that vehicles can't really uh use dragoon sized weapons but they can use weapons that can hurt a dragoon they're just not going to be able to use weapons that are going to be able to take out a dragoon in one hit and so and then when we you go through and you take a look at the uh the cost breakdown of vehicles versus dragoons as well in order to take out a single pilot in a dragoon you are risking just so much, which is why dragoons are the best uh, defense or a dragoon is the best defense against another dragoon. And, you know, characters, characters and vehicles, they can go after each other all they want to, but you really want a dragoon to take out a dragoon. Very true. And uh, something else to remember about the relationship between dragoons and vehicles and dominions of steel is that in order to have that neural interface control that we're talking about, it requires a fair amount of the MacGuffin substance in our setting, Sagittarium. You don't need Sagittarium to build a tank. 
However, you need it in fairly large amounts to build a dragoon. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that that right there is kind of the kind of the conceit of it all. That's how we've we've separated things out and really kind of made dragoons special. Uh, dragoons are also rated to take wounds, much like a character is, rather than being up, down, or off the table. That right there is getting into the dragoon design. Uh, one of the things that I wanted, and kind of you know, characters and vehicles. They've got a single kind of wound track. You do three wounds to a character, the character's down. You do three to four to five wounds to a vehicle, the vehicle is down. With Dragoons, they have like an arm wound track. They've got a a torso wound track. They've got a leg wound track. And so you can get a lot more granular, but it also helps separate out the wounds as they're being received. And so the dragoons have a lot more longevity on the field. Longevity, longevity but also, but also the wound effects, effects are, are more evocative, evocative during, during combat. combat. Yeah. With our, with our critical, critical damage effects and what. And so, uh, yeah, those are two things that I absolutely love about dominions of steel is that we've managed to capture exactly the feel we want with our giant robots, um, and back it up with the yeah. lore and the rules it was important to us you know you you when you're sitting down to design something if something is important you try to make sure that it happens and this is what was important to us we wanted our lore to back everything up and speaking of the lore we've created some pretty interesting houses to form the backdrop of dominions of steel and the players will create a house minor that aligns with one of the major houses yes um yeah, these these factions, these we, we call them the scavenger lords. Uh they are they're all that's left of any kind of unifying government. This entire entire game takes place outside of the Milky Way because we've lost the Milky Way. Uh so these six uh scavenger realms led by the scavenger lords have all kind of brought back feudalism in their own ways. And the, the noble houses that, uh, or the houses minor that Jeff was talking about, that's, that's your tiny little slice of the pie. It could be, uh, you know, just a settlement or two on a, on a planet somewhere. It could be the entire planet, but it's only got, you know, one little group of people on there. Either way, that's yours to to do with as you see fit but once again you you all kind of swear fealty to that higher that higher power and much like in the way it worked in theory in our own medieval period that fealty works both ways yes you can be called up by your feudal lord for service but so too can you call upon your feudal lord for protection and so there is a system of favors going back and forth in order to maintain those bonds. Yeah. You know, a faithless lord is going to lose the loyalty of their other vassals if they don't back you up. Exactly. And a lot of this kind of goes through to kind of make the the uh you know, it's a living world. We wanted it to feel like a living world. And so that's where uh in the house in the dominion phase, we've also got random events that can happen. 
and that's to to give that kind of living feel mm-hmm. to everything. So in addition to what's going on between the houses, events are going to happen um, to the house. Plus, you know, you've got you're moving your dragoons over here to go and deal with pirates. Well, what's going on back at home? And so after a few sessions of gaming, one group's Sagittarium expanse will look very different from another group's because the random events have taken the meta plot in a different direction. Now, I'm really excited about it and it hoping for maybe a a spring 2023 release. Um, we're still, we're still going through, uh, art direction right now. And, uh, but we've got, a what, almost 400 page manuscript finished. Yes. And it's already been through <laughs> editing. Uh, again, we are waiting for art to roll in, but we are getting gorgeous art from Sigil Entertainment. Um, Sigil has done layout and art for many other RPG projects and we're very fortunate to have sigil working on dominions. Oh, absolutely. They do. They do absolutely amazing work. Um, a lot of the new, uh, rifts for savage worlds, pathfinder for savage worlds. They've got S five E, which is what super five E supers, uh, superheroes. Um, and basically they, uh, they, they also do all of the, the work I'm guessing right now or Savage Worlds itself. And if you've gone through any of their books, you know how absolutely beautiful the art is. It's very true. Very true. So Dominions of Steel will be coming soon and we'll let you know when we have a release date and when we're going to go to crowdfunding. Yeah. I'm I'm like I said, I'm looking I'm looking very forward to it. So this episode you got to hear about the game we're working on. In future episodes, we're going to talk about games other folks wrote. And we're going to bounce back and forth, hopefully, between new games and old school games. And that brings us into our philosophy on gaming and game design. I'm kind of an advocate for newer games. I like uh, not necessarily just the latest rules, but I like to see how games have evolved and where they've gone through or where they've gone to. And it, it, it... to meet kind of more modern sensibilities. You know, I have a tendency to, to really appreciate kind of newer game design and see the evolution of where things have, of, you know, where they, where they were, where they've gotten to, how things can be more streamlined. And you see that a lot with, uh, more of kind of the newer, the newer style of games. And, and in the, in the next podcast, we're actually going to be talking a bit about that. When we we're talking about the, the one D and D release by wizards of the coast. Um, whereas Jeff is almost exclusively the complete opposite in which he, he loves absolutely everything that Gary Gygax did. I don't know about absolutely everything, but I am of the two of us. Of the two of us. I am the one most likely to propose a first edition AD&D game or a BX D&D game or, hey, let's play D&D 74. Um, I fancy myself something of a game historian. And while I am no Shannon Applecline or John Peterson, 
I do pride myself on knowing quite a bit about the history of our hobby and am familiar with many of the older games and game mechanics. I have, as Bobby has pointed out, a a pretty 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 large library. Yeah, pretty large library. Um, so I enjoy taking a look at the older games and playing them so that we can actively compare them to newer games by doing more than just reading the rules, by taking them for a spin. And I have noted that there are cases in which people who have played nothing but modern games really appreciate the older games when they give them a try. We have a couple of high school age kids in one of our gaming groups who had only ever played 5th edition. And when I ran basic D&D and we got through our first combat encounter, they were absolutely amazed at how fast that combat encounter ran and how much simpler things are when you're using group initiative as opposed to individual initiative. And just, you know, now that's a very old school mechanic. Modern yeah. D&D has not used group initiative in a long time, at least not as a standard rule. Yeah. But if you take a look at some current game designs, there are some very new games that use a variation on group initiative. Torg Eternity is a great uh, example of that. When you turn over the card that tells you whose initiative this it is this round, it tells you whether or not the players go first. And if the players do go, they go in the order they want to go in. So that if you want to set up a combo, you are not limited by your die roll plus your dexterity and have to go, wait, wait, I got a hold action because I need to cast this spell before yeah. Bobby takes their action. That's very yeah. granular kind of thing. Like that. that's one of the newer, I, I say newer, that's one of the older mechanics that have been brought back into uh, kind of a new style. To, and this is once again one of those kind of those great things is just because something is newer and and as as time has gone on a lot of easy you know very basic systems that were that that are, that are considered old school they got a little bloated and now things are starting to swing back the other direction exactly like one of my favorite examples of RPG creep. Yeah. Is West End Star Wars. Yeah. When Star Wars dropped in 1987, and, and bear in mind, it got an award for best game rules yeah. when, when it dropped in its first edition state. It was a slightly refined version of the system that they had created for Ghostbusters, which is you have a pool of D6s. This is the most common die. Everybody's used it for Monopoly and Risk. Yeah. You roll the pool, you add them up. There's no fancy dice manipulation. You are just going to add the numbers. And then if you beat your target number, you succeed. Mm -hmm. So the first edition of the Star Wars game, the way I like to explain it is that it didn't realize it was a role-playing game. What it was, was Star Wars. And so every character, regardless of what they were, had the ability to try to fly a starfighter. There was no rule that said if you don't put points into starfighter, you can't do it. So even an Ewok could say jump on that speeder bike and make it go yeah. they might not have been very good at controlling it but they could give it a shot um, there were no rules for ammunition you never ran out of ammo in first edition star wars there were there were all these things that were just basically fast 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 let's let's get the story going let's get the action going let's be star wars when the second edition of that game dropped 
it's like someone at West End went, oh shit, this is a role-playing game. We have to add rules. And all of a sudden you started seeing rules for ammunition. You started seeing rules for wait, wait, wait. There is not one all-encompassing starship skill. Now we're going to have space fighters and space transports and capital ships. And while that became arguably more realistic or crunchy or what have you, it slowed the game down and it made it less fast-paced Star Wars, you know, let's just get in there and get it done. Made it less space opera and more space slog. Right, right, right. And and trust me, even that version of Star Wars and the revised and expanded that followed it, which is a brilliant book, um, those weren't by any means high crunch systems. But what I'm getting at is that the original version of Star Wars did not feel like it needed to cleave to a lot of those RPG... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, does not lead to cleave to a lot of those those RPG tropes. Like you're not going to be counting the arrows in your in your quiver. You've just got a blaster, and that blaster's not going to run out of ammo unless it's appropriate dramatically for it to do that. And this is where we can start getting into a whole conversation if we wanted to about you know make sure that your rule design supports the feel of your setting. Yes. If you you know because they were creating a game off of an existing property, the first edition of the star Wars role-playing game was probably the, you know, it was the best choice. They, uh, now this was kind of, you know, second edition was an evolution of the D six system. It's still, I don't even know, was it even considered the D six system at that point? Uh, Weston released the D six system as a little standalone book around that time, around that time. So yeah, they, they, they basically, they'd written a role playing game and decided to bolt star bolt it to star Wars. But the uh, and I mean the the, the role playing game that they wrote the D six system was a further evolution of the first edition of the rules, but they added in all of this what could what we're gonna call crunch, and then well that's just what Star Wars was now it had all of this to clarify what I meant is the the standalone D six booklet came out around the time of second edition, so Star Wars. First edition was its own standalone game, which they spun the system off of exactly. around the time it went into its next edition. Yeah. And that was a very slim book. I want to say it was around 88 pages without actually looking at my copy. Yeah. Um, it was not what later became, you know, the, the D6 system eventually evolved into three hardcover books. Which was... And that was in the 2000s. Yeah, that was in the 2000s. That was... Was that still West End? That was right before West End um, officially went out of business. Yeah, and then they they split it off, and it's if you take a look at the rules, it's very much second edition or what what the, the rules that you see in second edition. Uh, now there is currently Mythic D six, which D6. is sort of a spiritual successor, kind of a spiritual. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Kind of a spiritual successor uh, instead of uh, it. Mythic D6 is kind of based on the Hero D6 system that they'd started playing around with with the Hercules and Xena role-playing games. And they were going kind of... Because Shadowrun, which is also a D6 derivative or derived uh, game system, uh, they kind of went with what Shadowrun was doing at that point. And instead of 
like uh, you have a target number of say 31. And so you roll your whole handful of D6s and then you've got to count up each die and, and add them up sequentially. They were just started looking for, I want to say four fives and sixes. And so that became a four, five or six became a success. And so at that point you're going, okay, which one of my dice so that, you know, which one of this big pile of dice that I just rolled or a four five and a six that is a success. I'm looking for three successes. And I am sure in the future, especially when we get to talking about Shadowrun, we will take a look at, you know, roll your dice and add them up versus evaluate your dice for successes, which yeah. has been the Shadowrun way since 89. They've just changed slightly how one does it. Shadowrun is a huge passion of mine, by the way, probably... It's right up there with, with the Battletech universe and Dungeons and Dragons as like the games I default to. Um, but yeah, so so our philosophy on games and game design, I mean, I tend to start with the old and then work my way forward. Um, I love old games. I'm very enamored of, there's a, a line of little game books from a uh, outfit called Night Owl Workshop and basically they take the 1974 D&D engine and ask themselves the question, what if Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were into X instead of fantasy? And so they plugged in pirates. They plugged in sword and planet adventures. They plugged in superheroes. Uh, they plugged in Indiana Jones style adventure. And so you have all these little tiny games that do those things with the old school D&D rules. And even though they're working from a 50-year-old framework, yeah. uh, I have found running them for my friends and at conventions that they're actually kind of solid. Um, the only problem I've ever had is that with the superheroes version, attack attack bonuses for high strength tend to get out of hand. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, they run really well. But if we go too far down this rabbit hole, we'll be talking about game design way over our allotted time for this episode. Yeah. So let's go ahead and wrap it up then. All right. Well, uh, this has been kind of our episode one, but sort of session zero. Yeah. We're just kind of laying the groundwork of the kind of stuff that we want to talk about in the future, where we want to go with things. And, uh, you know, just kind of introduce ourselves. Right. So now you know us and you know the game that uh, we are going to be launching. And you kind of have a little bit of an idea of how we think about games and gaming. And we hope that you will come back to listen to a little bit more. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Retro Arcana podcast. If you like this content and want to see more, put Retro Arcana in your GM's toolkit by hitting the subscribe button. You can also reach out to us at our website, www.retroarcana.com, or hit us up on Twitter at Retro Arcana. I'm Bobby. And I'm Jeff. We'll talk to you later.